This is FutureSight, a show from Capgemini Invent, where we explore emerging technology trends and new ways for you to adapt and grow your business. I'm Gary Bamaya, the Chief Technology and Innovation Officer of Capgemini Invent and the co-host of FutureSight. In this week's episode, we're speaking to Shaylee Harrison, CEO of Mutiny, and one of the OGs in the digital-only fashion space. Shaylee graduated from the Royal Academy of Finance Antwerp and was recently recognized as one of Belgium's 11 top fashion tech pioneers. Quite a bit of uh, an achievement there, Shaylee. Welcome to FutureSight. Yeah, thanks for having me. We're very happy to get you over here because uh, we've met in real life. Uh, and so I think you you know that you know fashion and I are inversely correlated. Um, <laughs> so a lot of the, the questions I'm going to be asking you are really quite basic because I don't know much about fashion and even less about digital fashion. So, so let's start from the very beginning. Could you tell us a bit about yourself, your experience in old school fashion and how you got into digital fashion? Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess to start with, as you can hear, I'm Australian, but currently based in Antwerp, Belgium. When I moved here, I moved for the Antwerp fashion department. And during that time, I did a lot of experimentation. That department's really known for like avant-garde or high creative fashion. Um, so it's very free with what you can make. And I started out by kind of 3D scanning my silhouettes and created a virtual reality exhibition experience for the teachers. It was the first time anyone had done that at the school or experienced anything like that. So it was just really fun to play with. But I kind of wanted to up the ante a bit and create more movement because, of course, when you scan things, it's very static. When I graduated, I was commissioned to do an artwork uh, for exhibition at Z33 Gallery in Hasselt, and it was supposed to be a textile exhibition. But I was so exhausted from sewing and doing all the craft work part of it that I thought, heck, I'm going to make a digital textile. So I created an immersive like VR experience where the entire room was a textile and then I had these characters free roaming around and it was quite um, experimental in that sense. And then to create that, I invited a couple of digital artists, really amazing collaborators, Lucas and Tia, who helped me on the technical side. So I was always interested in digital, but I always worked with like high creative freelancers who could execute it and also bring their own flavor. After that, I went on to move to India in New Delhi to work for Manish Aurora uh, as a designer and I worked on his last collection and then came back to Paris for Fashion Week and moved back to Antwerp just before the pandemic. At that time, I was invited to do a digital fashion experience with Digital Village, which allowed me to kind of build a new team again, work with other new creators and put together digital film with three anthropomorphic plant characters that were wearing digital fashion. And yeah, it was a pretty wild stuff I was building. At that time, Evelyn Mora, who runs Digital Village, was saying that, oh, you know, when we release it, you can sell your assets for tokens. And I was like, to tokens, can I, but what the hell, you know, what is it, a piece of cardboard? Like, what can I do with these tokens? And eventually I, I figured it out, you know, I took the deep dive and started all of the reading and watching all of the videos and listening to all of the podcasts and just learning as much as I could. And it kind of opened up my world, like I think it has for many. Um, for me, I really saw it as a new channel for creativity and to monetize creativity because certainly in fashion, when you're an avant-garde designer or like a high creative designer, there isn't a lot of chance for you to make money. Your work goes on a lot of celebrities. It goes on stage and theater for dances, but you can't really live off that. This is kind of a way that I saw you can keep being like pushing the limits of your imagination, but not being restricted by, you know, the high turnovers and, and trend and, um, 
you can really push uh, creative boundaries. So that's when I really leapt hard into the blockchain NFT space and started Mutiny. And how long has Mutiny been out there for? Uh, just up to two years, we figured out. Um, it still feels quite new. Um, but yeah, we're two years down the line, um, which is kind of interesting to look back on. There's been a lot of, uh, it's been a roller coaster the whole time. <laughs> no, but what's interesting, is, you know, when I looked at Mutiny, the first thing that you see is you you label yourselves as a collective. And on one side, that's got a very Tao kind of feel, but I wanted to ask the reason that you have labeled yourself as a collective, is it because of the the diversity and skill set or is just that the way that fashion tribes actually exist? Well, actually, I didn't want to use the word collective because for some reason, you know, I'm I'm funny about language and I, I don't know, it, it seems like a co-op or something. Um, I actually use the word on the website unitive, which is meaning with the intention to unite. So I wanted to run Mutiny like a record label. That's my comparison, a kind of cultural center point where we curate and bring in designers that we think make sense for the game and virtual space. And in that way, they can work with us to monetize their creativity and we do all the development, promotion, marketing and sales for them and channel them into the different game spaces. So it's not necessarily like a collective where everyone kind of brings a different skill set. It's more like a record label where the artists bring their raw IP and we help them channel it towards the space. And it also means that those who are buying or looking at Intermutiny or following it know where to get a specific type of creative um, visuals, of quality, of specific type of designers, of energy and a reflection of our times. So that's the view I have on it and that's how we're building it out at the moment. How do you guys make the assets today? Because you're a classically trained um, person, right? You've come to the Fine Arts Academy, you've got a master's in it. But today, a lot of these assets that are getting created are purely digital. So I'm, sh- I'm, I'm sure that there's you know a certain kind of upskilling that's required. But at the same time, sometimes it's actually better to have specialization. Let the artist do the artistic work, let the, the technical people do the technical work. How does it work today, not just in Unity, uh, in Unity, um, Mutiny, sorry, <laughs> in Mutiny. <laughs> There's a bit of Unity I involved know, too. <laughs> it just had to come out. <laughs> How does it work, not just with uh, Mutiny, but also in the overall Web3 fashion space today? Yeah, there's this kind of talk a lot in the blockchain and NFT space about cutting out the middle man. And with a kind of record label concept business model, of course, that gets raised to me a lot, aren't you being the middleman? But as a creator myself, as a designer myself, I know that most of the designers that we would like to work with or that we do work with would never, ever have the time or spend the time to learn the technology. They're trained as creative entities, as designers, that's their their creative directors and that's their forte. That's also my forte, which is why that we internally, we we bring on um, digital creators to work with us. Because I also feel like when you're working with a collaborator, especially when that makes sense for your aesthetic, they can also bring something special to the table and, and give it something extra. And when we work with freelancers and digital collaborators, there is a lot of trust there because it's kind of from end to end designers who are creative craftsmen, craftspeople, and digital creators who are also of the same breed. So there's like a kind of empathic thread there, living a very similar life in that sense. And I think that in the greater Web3 space, there's a lot of talk about empowering creators. That is why the middleman has existed, because it is a lot to ask people to promote and market and sell for themselves in this time when you need to try and get a lot of eyeballs on everything and you need to be able to give them the education and the tools and guide creative people towards being able to be self, you know, self-serving you and, and have that ability. So that's kind of where I sit or where I view it. No, I think that's it's an important role. I mean, it's lovely to say that we don't need middlemen and everything can be automated and trusted to code. But no matter how good your code is, 
how do you actually vibe with a technician, right? If you're a, someone who's artistic and you have a certain way in which you view the world, you also want to work with someone who resonates that in some way, shape or form. And I think that's where, whether it's a platform or a middle person, them being able to kind of introduce you or at least give you access to a choice of, you know, those kind of people, that's something that's very important. And um, I don't think it'll ever go out of fashion, to be honest with you, no, no matter how good the tech gets. It's never just about the tech. I feel it's always about the humanity in the end. You still need to trust someone somewhere at the end of the day. And we've also had that when working with our different sales platforms too. We still have to put a lot of trust in the teams. There is still a middleman for us as well. Yeah, th there's a, a old paper, um, academic paper written in the 1960s actually called The Irony of Automation. And one of the fun parts about that paper is, and they proved this, right? So it's not like a, it's not like a tweet in which they said, <laughs> this is the more and more you automate, what you end up doing is you have to put more and more people to ensure that the automation is happening properly. Like you've got to make sure that it, it's it's not like screwing up or, you know, it's doing what it's supposed to do or if it's having a problem. So I, I always find that a bit hilarious because it's kind of like a chicken and egg scenario. We're seeing this right now with, let's say, with ChatGPT, right? So right before we got on to this, to this recording, I was talking with Tom, the producer, and we were watching this this guy on LinkedIn who spent apparently uh, 17 minutes talking to three different uh, AI tools. He spoke to Midjourney. He came up with a prompt, created like a graphic for him. He then goes to ChatGPT and writes a, a script of what this, this avatar is supposed to say. And then he goes to another AI engine, which kind of helps him select a pitch and a tone of voice, puts it all together. And he's like, I made a mini animated movie, which goes on for like three minutes. Um, with, you know, 10 minutes of, of input of time that I put in. And in all of that, you know, on one side, we were kind of like, wow, this is so cool. On the other side, we were like, well, what does this actually mean? You know, and I think what's happening today with digital fashion, for example, is the same thing. There's all these new tools that have come out in which you can use it for artistic purposes or you can use it for automating certain functions. But with more and more tech coming into fashion, where's the actual impetus or where's the actual focus shifting today, not just in terms of art, but also what it means to the way that we buy art or use it. I think, especially in terms of art, there's always kind of questions, especially kind of uh, in contemporary art around, I mean, that is the question that is constantly raised. What is art? You know, when you put a urinal in the middle of the gallery, what is art, right? So when we bring AI into the question, it's also you know, this what is art, where even when you do see uh, amazing sculpture, it wasn't necessarily the hands of the artist that made the sculpture, it was their mind. And they had uh, several employees that were there to build the sculpture for them. So there's a question of at what point does the ownership of the art leave the hands of the like whoever drove the concept? And I think AI really challenges this for a lot of people in a very real way because it's coming into like the commercial space rather, you know, outside of the art space, but into the space of the graphic designer or the designer or the interior designer or, you know, it, it comes more into our everyday lives rather than just challenging us in a gallery. So that's something that I've kind of picked up on more and more lately. Um, I mean, there's a lot of conversations around AI happening uh, <laughs> since a while, and I always find it extremely interesting. I also think it's interesting that AI is an amalgamation of, you know, everything humanity has produced online visually, if it's a, you know, a visual generator, but can that produce something new out of it? If we're kind of constantly finding an um, average of everything we put in, does that mean we can create something new out of it? That's a, a question for me. And also, how come the average of everything we put in is like an acid trip every time? Um, and what does that say about us? <laughs> so. But have you been using um, these tools more and more in the way that you actually no, create not digital at all. fashion today? <laughs> because it's not filling a hole in my skill set. 
I, you know, like this, this is what I'm trained to do. And I think still at my own hands, it's better than AI. Sorry about AI. But if it gets better than me, sure, I'll give it a go. (laughs) I think it would be a different tool for me if I needed to use it. You know, I think the gaps in, if you're a designer, maybe your gap is more around, I don't know, typically mathematics or writing. So I think it would be more interesting as a reverse. Like if I could put my imagery in and then get a really nice uh, language description that could tell the story and tell uh, be a verbal visual aid because a lot of the times the world is quite rote and needs uh, language in order to understand. Uh, and when you're a visual person, that's your only communication tool a lot of the time. So I think, yeah, it just depends on what gaps I'm looking to fill as to whether I would be bringing AI into it. For now, when I use it, it's more just like throw some words in and see what comes out and go like, what the hell, you know, and just it's fun for that reason. (laughs) But in terms of bringing it into my practice, yes, I have thrown up a couple of Instagram posts where uh, it's all AI generated and some may have been none the wiser, but it's uh, convenient, uh, especially if you have to, you know, keep up with social media and post however many times a day, if you can just, you know, vomit out a few AI generated images and put some text with it. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, but this is where the question of value comes in because, I think even today, the creative process and resonating with a certain kind of vibe that comes from a designer is super important. So now that you've kind of, you know, really jumped in face first almost into the the entire digital fashion space, can you give us an understanding of what exactly is the space? Like, how big is it? I see a lot of posts with, you know, brands saying that we're doing this. There's now, you know, entire fashion shows happening in the metaverse. So what are we actually looking at? Is it a sizable um, you know, opportunity or how big is this market right now? I think sometimes you have the impression that it's really big because there's a lot of big names jumping on the bandwagon. But in reality and physical reality, when we all get together, we realize very quickly it's very small. <laughs> um, we all in digital fashion know well of each other by now. And many of us have at this stage met physically several times. A lot of those larger brands are speaking to one or several among us, and many are facilitating the you know activities of those brands or consulting those brands. So it feels wide because there are many uh, brands involved, but for those who are actually executing, uh, it's, it's very small. And one thing I picked up on, especially because I was just at Decentral at Art Basel Miami, is that were a lot. There were a lot of people who were um, consulting or picking up jobs from these larger entities, but not knowing actually uh, who to turn to to execute it. So for us, that was obviously very good because we have the technical know-how to deliver the the product. So yeah, I was happy about that. There's plenty of work for us out there. No, that's always good to hear, especially because, I mean, the the number of digital-only fashion houses is still very small. There's Fabricant, there's you guys, there's Digital Axe, you know, there's probably a few more. I was watching uh, G Money, he's come out with something new as well. So there's a few things going on over there. But for me, I think what's important for me to understand is what do the brands actually see, right? I mean, they have not created digital-only fashion. This has been going on on the fringes in the crypto community and, you know, people who are much more techy till then and more in the gaming world. And all of a sudden, you find these two coming in violent confrontation with each other and each one trying to kind of like adapt to the other person's ways, you could say. So today, when these big brands are coming in, what, what what's their their motivation? Why do they actually think that you know they should get involved in digital fashion? Uh, promotion, marketing, and promotion, um, and that's really clear to me because most of those I speak to, they're from marketing teams. Sometimes it will be kind of their innovation head, but there'll sting, still be a very long road for that person to kind of push it to the higher ups. So you do see a lot of like frustration between kind of an individual or a, a group that internally feel really passionate about this but the hurdles 
to get through to be able to execute it are just, you know, lengthy. And then all, a lot of the brands, they're all kind of waiting around for someone to do it right and then they'll all kind of jump jump on very quickly. So you find you'll see like someone did something in Roblox and then all of a sudden there was just this wave of Roblox. So it just kind of you see the, the hype go from one one entity to the other or one space to the other so but their main motivation is still to push physical product so it's still really about branding and still really about showing face and trying to gain traction with the gen z or younger audiences um at the end of the day to drive physical products so i don't i haven't really seen any brands yet consider that the actual digital product itself is the product um which is kind of the view we take or that's where we see things going and our aim as well why aren't you having that conversation with you because i mean let's let's look at a couple of statistics 3.5 billion people play games the average age of a of a gamer is you know 36 for males maybe 30 um four for females which means that they are in the the, the spending category, right? They can actually spend money. Um, and increasingly, we, you know, we've all grown up being digitally native almost, especially the, the Gen Zs and the generations in, in, in and around that ballpark. So what's the reason that the brands are not kind of understanding that the digital asset by itself is what you should be kind of also thinking about selling and not just the physical? I think that it's taken them long enough just to get to this point. Um, so I think to really grasp that idea you would have to put a team to really understand gamers and gameplay and subculture that exists in gaming the motivations to buy a digital asset for your like as a game skin it's very different than the motivation to buy a physical asset it's not only about the aesthetic, but it's also about what are you signaling? And that can be that you're an OG or that you're part of like some specific club or that, you know, banana suits hot right now, but it's a very fast shifting space as well. So you really have to know, and you really have to be in touch with that audience on a personal level. So it's all a bit ambiguous because a lot of the brands are just kind of replicating what they do in reality uh, and hoping that will stick but from what I've seen um, just because you're a big brand and you do well in traditional fashion it doesn't necessarily mean that gamers are going to want it most gamers I know don't have that much interest in fashion typically (laughs) Uh, and um, their idealized self is is you know not necessarily that trendy in in physical life so yeah I mean when I look at the statistics on Fortnite and the Balenciaga drop Yes, it was successful in terms of promotion, but no, it was terrible in terms of asset sales because um, normally the top wishlisted items are around 22,000 people wishlisted. For that drop, it was between 1,000 and 2,000. So when you consider how many are playing, it's not really showing much uh, authentic interest in the product and yeah just why not I guess fashion is very it's a dinosaur and it takes a long time to to get these these balls rolling so I think they may come around but um, they have to see the money and they have to see it done well first and then they'll all like I said jump on the bandwagon yeah but that's good right especially for guys like you because it offers a kind of a, a virgin territory where you can go inside and define your own identity. The key thing in doing that, in my opinion, would be your level of understanding of this new audience, this new market that's out there. Can you tell me a little bit more about this? Because this is something that I've, I'm have i not a gamer. My nephew, Aditya, kind of talks to me about it sometimes, but I don't really get a lot of it. <laughs> Shout out to him. But yeah, I'd love to know, like, why have you decided that this is the direction that you know, you and fashion brands need to start thinking about what's the actual value of that and what's different from, you know, the IRL world of fashion. I mean, it's different because it's random uh, and it's different because it doesn't necessarily align with current trend. And that randomness I love 
And that's kind of what makes it interesting for me and interesting for other high creative designers because it means that the door is open for strange things to happen um, on a creative level. And there are many people doing that already in life, but fashion can be between art and like commercial fashion. It can be between those lines. Because fashion has had these high turnovers, it's really squashed a lot of that creativity. Like when you look back at kind of the 80s and 90s in fashion, there was a lot more time to develop a collection. There was a lot more time to conceptualize it. There was a lot more room for really like fabulous fashion shows that really drove the concept home. There was just a lot more fantasy in general. Um, And a lot of the kind of older generation in fashion look back and say what happened you know (laughs) what happened it used to be so theatrical and glamorous and fun but as time goes on there's just never been time for that because we're operating at such a rapid pace um, it just becomes a machine I know that if it weren't the marketing teams handling these things but if it were the designers themselves in-house who are handling it it would be a completely different story that's that's kind of where I sit in the the traditional versus digital fashion space is that it it opens up that space for creativity, which is why I'm here and also why I'm bringing these designers in because it's really sad to see that energy go to waste, especially here in Antwerp where you see this most fabulous stuff on the runway, um, and then they go in and work for a major house and 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 none of that creative juice is really seen anymore. So, so yeah, I think that kind of working in this way in digital frees them up as designers too, and hopefully that can potentially feed, feed back into the traditional fashion space. Yeah, because I think I, the way that I'm listening to you, look, in every profession, there's always that sense of frustration. Even if you work in tech and you, you're building stuff and everything else, there's always differences of opinion. There's always um, a hyper-focus on what we're going to be able to make in the next quarter. And in a lot of ways, that focus is justified because if you want to innovate, if you want to do something a bit different, launch a new initiative, guess what? You need capital for it. And the only way you can get that capital is if you make money today, you know, not tomorrow. So this balance, this skew that happens between large organizations and people who want to create something different and new is always going to exist. I think the the reason that it's interesting for me today is when I talk about, you know, Web3, whether it's fashion or whatever it is, does that Web3 stack actually allow people to kind of express this um, this creativity that they want to put out there? And if they're doing it, it's not just a question of, you know, Web3 lowering the cost of doing it. It's also understanding, like, is there someone who's willing to buy it? Otherwise, you're just wasting their time. Yeah, and I think that's that's why the digital space is so interesting because it is a space that is willing to buy it. The fashion that I put out there in the traditional sense, people love it because it's fun and it's it's flamboyant and it's joyful and it's great to look at. But no, you can't wear that on the street. You wouldn't wear that out the house, you know, unless you're, you know, a, a certain kind of character. But people are more willing to be that character in the digital, which I think is a really important because I think having a space to be your raw self is really important. So who's buying the stuff today? Because um, for me, that's always been the fun part about digital art or anything which has kind of got this metaverse theme attached to it. You're not really bound by space and time. You know, you can really kind of go crazy in a different way. Um, but a lot of that craziness is also represented in your avatar. Your avatar is a manifestation of your personality. That That's what art and culture is all about. So... You know, are we seeing a change in terms of people wanting to express themselves in fantabulous ways and willing to actually spend money in order to do that? I actually don't see that there's there's a difference between digital, kind of the digital fashion space and the game space, and they're not necessarily synchronous at this point. Because in the game space, not not much really changes because everything uh, exists as it was. We're just talking about like a back end like an economical backend and, a, and a, a trading system and like a open space for creators to come in and create content, which just means that there's more diversity in the content. But the way everything runs and the way people want to express themselves, I don't think this changes necessarily. They're just given access to more to play with. 
And then the digital fashion space is more with the AR, looking at AR applications or kind of linking digital to physical products, these kinds of concepts. So it's in that sense more a layered digital physical experience um, going on there. And the audience is much more... I would say fashion focused or social media focused, um, or the traditional fashion industry buyers and, and wearers. But in general, in the, in the entire space as a whole, yeah, it's very male. <laughs> it's very much the people who are building in the space themselves as well. Again, very random because if you go to any uh, conference in these fields, you really see all walks of life. <laughs> Uh, say when I'm there I take note like yeah at what other conference would you get this like range of humanity in a room it's 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 bizarre so I think that's also why it's hard for those who don't necessarily know the space internally to like target anything in particular because it is very very widespread um, versions of humanity so who's buying this stuff actually I mean who are the who what's the current market for you know buying these digital fashion um, products. Uh, what are the digital fashion products, by the way? Because there's digital, there's AR, VR focused, there's pure metaverse focused. So I, I'm, I'm trying to get an understanding of what the actual market is today and how you see it, let's say, in three years down the line. The actual market today is, it's kind of evolved at this point. So initially it was like digital art, NFT collectibles. Uh, then it became NFT collectibles with some kind of utility. Utility being could be an AR filter, it could be access to a fashion show, it could be a physical product. And we're starting to see now more of a demand for the digital physical link. So like what G-Money is doing, embedding a microchip so that he kind of has a trace on all his products. So it's evo- it's evolving into more of a digital physical experiences where the, the digital fashion is an access key to certain items, experiences, and it can really be creative. It can be anything. Uh, I know the bigger brands, it's kind of a preview through a fashion show, like a one-on-one meeting with the designer, a discount of the products, uh, things like that. And that's why I say it's kind of this more of a marketing tool aspect or a way that they can be close with their interested buyers. And most of those interested buyers in the digital fashion space, they are, there's a few DAOs, collector DAOs, such as Jenny DAO or Red DAO, and they are seeking to support the space and they're seeking to own pieces of history. And then there is kind of the crypto bro, NFT enthusiasts, like (laughs) mostly guys, and they buy in because they see potential future values. So like, for example, with the dematerialized, they're in the Luxo blockchain. Um, Luxo have a really bullish community um, who really want to support the venture. So whether they're interested in fashion or not, they really are interested in into supporting the future of the venture and believe in the promise of what the dematerialized and looks I want to provide. So it's about early adoption and support and belief in specific projects as well. And then you kind of have early adopters in digital fashion, people who... For example, Danny Loftus, who is from This Outfit Does Not Exist, she was one of the earliest digital fashion, I would say, influencers um, who really just has a love for the the medium and is a spokesperson for it as a medium and as a, a beautiful thing. So you have a really a few different categories of people buying in at this point. But as I see it going on in future, when it becomes more about you have this speculative idea of the open metaverse, so you have interoperable gaming at play or interoperable blockchain gaming at play, then the world opens up to the players, which means that you have a new market and a new audience, which um, is a bit less about the crypto end or the um, support end. Um, and about the fashion end, but it comes a bit more about the gaming end and um, 
and skin design and the lore and the narrative and the fantasy and uh, what people want to flag within the subcultures existing there. Yeah, and and this is something that we've been working on. So I, you know, I I run um, a metaverse lab as well at Capgemini, and one of the things that we recently built was actually building an interoperable avatar. Because you know, if you want to you know, today, you sign in, and we all know how much we love having different passwords to sign into different sites. So we we've been actually looking at the avatar as you know something that's extremely personalized, in which you can actually use, let's say, certain kinds of proofs to to showcase attributes of the person and identity within the avatar but also make it as i mentioned before something customizable that represents your personality and the last thing you want to do is you know log into another place or and and have another avatar over there so how does the interoperability of avatar actually work for me is is i think one of the the building blocks in terms of building this open metaverse um and personally you know you, to each his own if you want to have your your own private metaverse for certain kinds of functions where it doesn't make sense to have a large public population take part over there i think it should be closed but it shouldn't just be a gated community which i think a lot of the the larger brands and and companies which are built in the metaverse space today they're trying to kind of create their own little system around over there i just feel that you can keep your own systems but as long as you have an ability to talk to let's say a general public blockchain or a general kind of platform where people can come and go and you know make choice and options that's something that's super important moving forward um you know now that i've got a better understanding of what the actual market is it seems to me that it's it's a lot like how the fashion industry was or the art industry was back in the 60s in which it was very few people who were spending a you know a large amount of money um but as time went on it started becoming more and more contemporary more and more common and today what you've got is you don't yes you still have you know pieces of art that are sold for millions and millions of dollars but there's a lot of artists who can make an actual living just by being you know professional artists which is selling small pieces of art um and everyone wants to kind of feel that you know they also have their own art moving forward seeing that we are in the same kind of space today when it comes to digital fashion and digital art what has been the impact of the recent bear market and of course the the ftx scenario how's that all <laughs> impacted you know digital fashion and digital art um in the last two quarters of 2022 Yeah, I mean it impacts everyone of course um and for us specifically it impacts our um the marketplaces that we work with. I think especially as a lot of us are startups, everyone's still trialing and experimenting ways of working and adapting. Um it means that we have to then uh, receive the repercussions of whatever those decisions are. I was actually thankful in these moments that we haven't gone up for investment rounds because a lot of those ventures you could tell that their investors were breathing down their necks and they were having to really pivot and reroute their course so that they could deliver and i was thankful not to have that pressure it means that we could be lean mean and uh, movable uh, at the time but it also meant that a lot of our projects um got postponed which obviously affected cash flow which obviously you know sucks <laughs> and uh yeah but but we get by and um uh, we just keep building like everyone says obviously you need cash to build um so we <laughs> have a few have some a little bit just enough to complete what we were doing actually we've we've really done well off the support of um the city of Antwerp of Flanders um we've had a lot of amazing uh grant money that has allowed us to do our own trials and experiments and projects which means that we can try learn and experiment but with a lot less risk involved so i'm really thankful that we have been in that position but yeah it impacted us a lot because 
because we had been working very hard on a lot of projects and and I really wanted to show them to the world but um you know we needed a platform as a vehicle to to sell and to show it and that also meant that if we were to drop at those times then you know we created very high quality content but then we we wanted to give it a, a price to match but you know we're also aware that those in the market have lost a lot of money and we don't want to ask too much of anyone because it hurts so you have to be lenient to the emotions of everyone involved i think now you know time has passed a lot of the the clutter of those around for hype has been cleared away you can really clearly see who's in it for the long haul and and that's also nice to observe as well so yeah that's that's how we've been kind of affected um hoping that the market fix up soon <laughs> 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 I think there's there's signs of it picking up soon, right? For me, um, I was um, I, what we're seeing today with the beginning of 2023 is really um, more and more enterprise adoption. And while yes, you do have these Bernie Madoff, Sam Bankman-Fried kind of instances that happen every decade and do leave a dent in the market, and you know it, it's a scar. People don't forget it. Um, nevertheless, that's a minority. That's a small group of people. Most of the people are just kind of trying to do the right thing and and build something interesting and impactful and move on. Uh, and we're seeing that. We work with large financial institutions. We work with um, a lot of companies who use you know technology services. Um, and we're seeing that a lot of them who we either work with or partner with, they're still continuing to do so. I think the biggest news recently was with... Uh, AWS and Avalanche. So now AWS and Avalanche have kind of come into this joint partnership together. Um, and that, you know, obviously had a 20% spike in the in the price of Avalanche the, the, the day that it happened. Um, but from apart from the quick flip, if someone made a quick benefit, good for you. Um, what's imp- interesting for me is that's one more step further of the Web3 tech stack getting part of the operating system of a large organization. And the moment that happens, now you have something in which you can say, well, is decentralized storage something better or not? Is decentralized compute something that I can use as an alternative? It's not a replacement of Web2 computation. It's, It's an alternative. It's probably useful for certain use cases. And you can just keep going up and up that stack till you get to um, identity, self-sovereign identity, till you get to you know NFTs, and then right on top you've got fashion industry, this industry, that industry. So I feel that that's kind of like the optimistic way that things are moving forward. Um, but nonetheless, um, it's still kind of like early days. My general rule now, when I start looking at any crypto project, is: Have you been through three cycles? You know, one bear, one bull, one bear, or, you know, bull, bear, bull, whatever thing it is, because that's so important today. Anything that's happening with Web3, the longevity fact is so important because there's so many people who are just shilling. They just come in, try to make a quick buck and and, and get out of there. And once, twice, you know, fool me once, I'm the fool, but fool me twice, you know, whose fault is it? That's kind of like what's happening today. And... um. With that, I just wanted to start getting like, you know, because we're coming towards the end of the talk as well as to what are you seeing in in, in terms of like the future of Web3 fashion? Where do you think this is actually going to go? Who are the people who are going to be working on it? And what are the conversations which we should be having, which you're not having today in these conferences? I mean, for us, we're really looking at... um we're, we're looking at it through a gaming lens and where others will be looking at it more from the traditional uh, fashion lens. I see it kind of the blockchain being integrated as a backbone to a lot of luxury goods, which is starting, this experiment is really starting to happen uh, right now. Like kind of artworks see it as an authentic, yeah, this authentication being a really valuable asset to those who, you know, buy these things and collect these things. Um, In terms of augmented reality, I think there's just incredible things being done. Uh, It started off, you know, when I, uh, it's a couple of years ago, super shonky, 
like <laughs> wobbly um, matter on the body. <laughs> There's still a lot of that, but I start to see some beautiful like artwork where you can hold your phone up and things are coming out and you can create entire narratives and experiences with augmented reality. Um, and if I think of things like Pokemon Go and how successful that was, if you can create these like digital physical experiences where you can um, roam and gamify fashion with the digital in life, I think this is a really strong um, way to bring people into your your brand and your story um, and your concepts. Um, where else in digital fashion I see that there will be like designers who will now focus or that we're bringing in designers who will now focus on learning more about um, addressing the audience in gaming rather than the audience in fashion. And then hopefully we see a lot more like how the internet with um, social media, we saw a lot more pockets of subculture and humanity that expressed themselves on social media in new and different ways. So we were exposed to a lot of breadth of like visual expression. So we learned that there were like, oh, the, you know, there's this like cyber goths in Poland or that there's, you know, <laughs> this certain aesthetic or there's a uh, cottage core or um, dad bod or, you know, you start to see more of these small clusters of like visual trend. Um, and I think in the same way that um, the more we access this, this digital world, we'll discover new clusters of visual trend. And that will also translate into physical clusters of visual trend. Um, we'll see that freedom of expression, like hopefully expand more. I'm a big advocate for that. So um, that's a repercussion that I do hope will happen. Um, whether it does or not, we'll see. But I only see being able to share things digitally and express yourself more in more ways digitally as having that effect already. So, you know, fingers crossed. No, but I think that's also the way that, you know, brands need to think about how they're going to evolve. It's not just about the technology or something like that. But I remember reading this amazing article, which was on Wired, um, and it was all about this. Uh, it was called the Fantastic Planet, right? So fan and fantastic. And what they found over there was, you know, initially when um, there was a lot of fan fiction sites that cre were created when Harry Potter came out. And one of the things that Warner Brothers that actually owns the IP of one of uh, Harry Potter, what it tried to do was actually crack down on these fan fiction sites because they felt they were adulterating the IP. Um, in one world, uh, Harry Potter's gray, gay, and his boyfriend is Draco. Um, in another one, you know, Sirius isn't dead. And in another one, Hermione is, isn't a, a white girl. So it took them a long time to actually understand that what these fandoms are creating is actually generating enthusiasm. And as a result of that revenue, right? And it, it wasn't really a question about trying to make money out of J.K. Rowling's or Warner Brothers' IP. It was more about kind of like adding to it and having fun. It wasn't correcting or fixing it. It was really about having fun. And as a result of that, engagement went up. And as you have engagement, you've now got a brand that has, you know, been at the forefront of culture for at least the past 15 years. And I think that's what the brands need to kind of move towards, that you've got subcultures getting created because it never, ever stops. Culture doesn't stop, right? And technology is a carrier bag of culture. Um, so if you're, if you're having more and more of culture kind of evolving, your brand cannot be static. It has to interact with them and it has to have a new kind of conversation. Technology is the tool that actually helps you do that conversation. But what is that conversation? And I think like a lot of the work that the startups and the, you know, record label modeled <laughs> um, collectives that are getting created today, they're having that, that conversation and that the brands actually need to listen to it. So this is probably the, going to be the last question for me, Shirley. It's I, I want to know, how do you think that the brands should listen to you guys? What's the best way to do it? And, you know, not just speaking to the marketing team in a big brand. 
yeah, they can, of course, talk to us. Um, I think a lot of the brands are speaking to consultants who are purely consultants, and that is a lot of what I was seeing. Um, <laughs> sorry about that, Kari. <laughs> no, they just, I told them to come and talk to you because I don't have anything to say. <laughs> and, and, you know, that is like what I was seeing in Miami, um, a lot of consultants being like, okay, I've consulted them, they're ready to go, but actually how now? I don't know how. Um, so <laughs> it's it's useful when you kind of have the the knowledge of the space and the way things are moving in general but also know how to execute because it gives you a, a full of it gives you a full of view um, on what is happening and kind of like similar like similar to what you were saying there a lot of the gaming space is about open source about cco about hacking and experimenting and i would love to see f- more of that in fashion it's a big ask though because fashion is very like ego driven industry and people really want to hold tight to their ip but um yeah like you were saying like the value in in sharing uh with your audience is is huge um so i think that you know like there is a lot of talk about um also when i go to conferences there's a lot of people talking about the creator economy but there are not a lot of creators on the panel or in the room um so having those voices or hearing those voices is more important because they are the first to know um, where the trends are. They are the first to know how people are reacting um, and they are the first to know how to like experiment and execute um, what needs to be done. At the moment, there seems to be like a little bit of a disparity between, you know, those kind of pitching the space and those who are actually building. And I think that needs to come closer together. So for the brands, I would say, yes, speak to a consultant, but then also speak to the those who are on the ground um, actually building. And you have seen a lot of brands who have, as a way in, partner with uh, a specific artist um, to access their audience and things like that. But um having their knowledge on exactly who their audience is and how they react and how they work and how it's received is is really valuable. No, it sounds like it's a new kind of conversation. And, you know, I think you're probably one of the best suited people to, with them whom they can have that conversation. So, um, Shelley, to end this really fun episode, where can people find you if they want to have these conversations with you? Yeah, if you if you want, you can always head to our website, um, mutiny.io, so M-U-T-A-N-I dot I-O, turn the sound up. <laughs> it's a little bit of fun. Um, through there, you can head to our uh, link tree where we have everything up there. We also have a Twitter, mutiny underscore I-O, Instagram, mutiny.io. Um, and through all of those channels, you can always speak to me or uh, our co-founder, Anne, um, LinkedIn too. We're pretty open to everyone, so yeah, feel free to get in touch. No, that's great. And we'll, we're going to add a lot of that in the show notes. Um, also, for those of you who are listening, if you enjoy this episode, don't forget to listen back to some of our recent episodes on all things Web3 and Metaverse, and we'll be adding a lot of that in the show notes today as well. So, Shaylee, with that, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Um, you're going to be able to hear this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your your, your podcasts. Um, is there any words of wisdom you'd like to leave the audience with? <laughs> Not really. Just have a nice day, everyone. And thank you for having me. No, that'll be more than pleasure. Thank you so much for that. Um, we'll be back next week looking for another new and complex challenge and how technology could provide an answer to them. This has been Future Sight, a show from Capture Mind Bend. We'll see you soon. Thank you.